as we'll learn about in chapter four, consciousness is really all about being aware of everything that's around you and everything that's happening to you. So let's take a moment to settle and gather ourselves, become more consciously aware of what's going on with ourselves in this moment. So find a comfortable position, a comfortable posture, wherever you may be, and take a moment to check in with yourself. Notice your breathing. Is it fast or slow? Shallow or deep? Notice your heartbeat. As we discover in chapter four, consciousness is all about becoming aware of ourselves and the things around us. So before we jump into today's lecture, let's take a moment to settle ourselves and become aware of ourselves. So whatever posture you're in, whatever activity you may be doing, see if you can pause it for a moment. Let yourself find a comfortable posture or position and notice your breathing. Is it fast? Is it slow? Are you breathing deeply or are you taking shallow breaths? Just notice. Now do the same for your heart rate. Is your heart racing? Is your heartbeat slow and even? How are you feeling physically today? Do you have any spots of tension or soreness? Any pain? Or do you feel really comfortable and flexible and able to do what you need today? Next, check out your emotions. Are you feeling anxious, angry, sad, calm? Just notice. We'll move now to our thoughts. Take a moment to recognize if your thoughts are racing, if you have a lot on your mind and you're maybe even feeling overwhelmed, or if you feel like your mind is clear. And finally, check in with yourself spiritually. Maybe you have a sense of spirituality or a spiritual practice in your life, or maybe you don't. If you do, take a moment to think about what your spiritual life looks like right now. Is it in a good place? Is it helping you? Or is it something that maybe could use some attention and some work in your life? Think about these things and revisit each category as you need to before you jump into today's lecture or really any other task that's going to require your attention today. Like always, we start at the very beginning. What is consciousness? Is that something you've ever even thought about before? It's a word that we're throwing around a lot more these days as we're becoming more aware of social issues and social injustices around us and taking actions to correct them. I'm hearing a lot of people say things like, to be more consciously aware or to be more conscientious about the things I'm listening to, the businesses I'm supporting, etc., etc., But what does that word actually mean, consciousness? Psychologically speaking, consciousness is awareness of everything that's going on inside and outside of you. Simple enough, right? And that's why in our mindful moment for this week, we focused on not only our internal well-being, but our external well-being, really an exercise in being more conscious. 
There are different types of consciousness. There's our waking consciousness, which is hopefully what's going on for you right now as you listen to this lecture. Those are the thoughts, feelings, and sensations that are clear. There's also an altered state of consciousness. This is a shift in the quality or pattern of mental activity. It happens when we're distracted, when we start zoning out, we're in an altered state of consciousness. I think we've all experienced that moment where you snap back to reality and it feels very different. There feels like a very clear shift between the zoning out and the really focusing. Another way our consciousness can be altered is through drugs, and this includes prescription drugs. When we hear that word drugs, we tend to think of illicit drugs or illegal drugs. But really that word means anything that you take, anything you put into your body. So it can be anything from marijuana to alcohol to something your doctor has prescribed, even for managing your allergies. All of these things are drugs. Alcohol, sleep deprivation are also ways that our consciousness can be altered. And one that happens that we don't always think about is meditation or religious and spiritual experiences. The ones I listed previously, distraction, drugs, sleep deprivation, alcohol, they tend to have a negative connotation to them. When you use or abuse those things or they get out of control, your consciousness is altered in a negative way. But your consciousness could be altered in a positive way through a religious or spiritual experience. Many people who practice meditation very regularly and have a kind of deep type of meditation often describe kind of transcending or going beyond the natural world that they're in. They're describing an altered state or an altered uh, state of conscious experience. I hear the same thing with a lot of people who maybe attend church where there is communal singing or a communal chant um, or any type of gathering where there is a the community doing something together. Oftentimes that can elicit a type of altered state of consciousness as well. I included in our Canvas page a rather long TED Talk. It's 17 minutes, uh, which for a TED Talk is not very long, but we try to keep the videos for class somewhat short. But it's this really interesting examination of what consciousness is. And the speaker goes into great detail about his experience with anesthesia. And that is an altered state of consciousness as well. It's a very interesting TED Talk. It's not a required part of this course, but if you have the time or if you're interested, either save it for later or take a moment to listen to that as well. As we've discovered, one of the different states of consciousness, an altered state of consciousness, is sleep. So let's talk about the biology of sleep. You've probably heard of the circadian rhythm. This is that 24-hour bodily rhythm that's really dictated by the rising and the setting of the sun. And it often goes back to how people lived before electricity was invented. Sun is up, you are awake, you are doing things. The sun is down, you are not doing things, you go to sleep. In our brain, there's this tiny little section called the hypothalamus, which you should be familiar with by now, and it influences the glandular system which we are also familiar with. This plays a big role in sleep. Another big factor in the neuropsychological aspect of sleep is the suprachiasmatic nucleus. 
that is one of those words you can throw around at a party and people will think you are just the smartest person there. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is an internal clock that tells people when to wake up and when to fall asleep. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is also responsible for the natural production of melatonin. If any of you have ever struggled with sleep before, you've probably had it recommended to you to try melatonin. Melatonin is something you can buy over the counter, and it's supposed to help you fall asleep. So the recommendation is usually to take it when you eat dinner, and a few hours later, you'll start feeling drowsy and be able to fall asleep more easily. Your body produces this naturally. So with our electricity and our backlit tablets, cell phones, computers, TVs, whatever screens you have in your house, all of those are confusing your suprachiasmatic nucleus. It is recognizing light input. So it is thinking it's time to be up. The sun is up, so we are up. That's not really what's happening, but the suprachiasmatic nucleus is fairly primitive in its functioning. It's kind of an off or on, yes or no. If there's light, then we are awake. If there is not light, then we are asleep. So all of our electricity and our backlit devices confuse the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which influences our melatonin production. So if the suprachiasmatic nucleus is confused, then it's not going to produce the correct amount of melatonin to match our schedules. And the problem really there is that we don't operate on schedules. We kind of do what we want when we want, regardless of what we know is healthy to do. So one of the ways we can be kind to ourselves is going with the flow, going with nature a little bit more. The sun is up, we do things. The sun goes down, we start to wind down and stop doing things. We'll get to talk a little bit more about some suggestions for healthy sleep in a few minutes from now. That suprachiasmatic nucleus is also sensitive to daylight and it controls your body temperature. So the sun is up, it's time to do things. Your body temperature starts to rise because it is time to get up and do things. When the sun goes down and it's time for us to wind down and stop doing things, your body temperature also goes down. Sleep really is like a miniature hibernation. So the suprachiasmatic nucleus relying on those cues from the sun is going to influence the body temperature to essentially prepare you to mini hibernate and then wake up from that mini hibernation. So why do we sleep? Wouldn't it just be so much more convenient if we could be like cell phones, just on all the time, plug into something? Like maybe, what if coffee was that thing that could just keep us going all the time? Well, we tend to function that way, and as we're learning, that's maybe not the best thing in the world. And here's what happens when we try to function that way. We end up having micro-sleeps. This is sleep that lasts only a few seconds. When you hear of people falling asleep behind the wheel or while they're driving, maybe while they're at work, they fall asleep at their computer for a few seconds, that is a micro-sleep. That is a sign that you are not getting enough sleep or you are not getting restful sleep and your body is literally shutting down. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is being totally ignored. That's not a factor anymore and your body is just going to turn off. 
This is something that's pretty common for students. And thankfully, with this online modality, I can't tell if you're falling asleep during my lecture or not. But I know I myself am guilty of when I was a student falling asleep, having some micro sleeps during some lectures that weren't particularly interesting to me. When we don't get enough sleep, it's called sleep deprivation. You are deprived of sleep. This is when sleep loss impairs our concentration and it results in irritability. So this is when people might ask you if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. What they're asking really is, did you get enough sleep or did you get restful enough sleep? Most adults need seven to nine hours in each 24 hour time period in order to avoid microsleeps and sleep deprivation. But let's get back to that question of why do we need sleep? So we figured out that coffee is not going to get us through the day. We're still going to have micro sleeps and we're still going to be sleep deprived. Why do we need this anyway? Well, there's two different theories. The adaptive theory is that animals evolved sleep patterns to avoid predators by sleeping when predators are most active. So if you're trying to hide from something that wants to eat you, playing dead is a great way to do that. What's better than playing dead than being asleep? How many times has someone poked you or you've had to poke somebody because they were so knocked out, you were worried that they were not with us anymore, so to speak? So this is the adaptive theory that animals learned, if I sleep at night when the jaguars are hunting, then they're probably not going to find me. If I'm up wrestling around and trying to find a new hiding spot, that's when I'm going to get caught and I'm going to get eaten. So I'm just going to sleep when the predators are up doing their thing. The second theory is restorative, that sleep replenishes chemicals and repairs cellular damage. And what science has learned is that this is really important for the development of long-term memory. All throughout the day, you are learning new things, whether you realize it or not. And your brain is trying to store that information, but it needs the sleep part of your day in order for it to do that. So the restorative theory is that sleep restores you. It restores your energy. It restores the chemicals. It repairs damage that's happened to your body throughout the day. And that's the time when our short-term memories are converted into our long-term memories. This is also why it's recommended for students especially. You have a big test coming up. Some people think the best way to study is to just wait till the night before, pull an all-nighter, and cram. That's actually really detrimental to your brain, and you're not going to remember things very well. It's a lot better, even if you forgot and now you're in cram mode, it's a lot better to spend just a couple of hours studying, get a good night's sleep, and if possible, you know, wake up and review before the exam. But sleep is actually more important than staying up and cramming all night if you want to do well on that test. Part of the restorative theory of sleep is also that sleep increases our synaptic connections. Remember that when we increase our synaptic connections, we're essentially making that network or that web in our brain even stronger. We want strong synaptic connections. This increases our brain's plasticity, its ability to learn new things, its ability to adapt and change. 
And research has been showing more recently in the past couple of years that the stronger synaptic connections we have and the more of them that we have, the better our odds of fighting off Alzheimer's disease. What we basically want to do with Alzheimer's disease is have so many synaptic connections that the disease eats through the less important ones and it preserves the more important synaptic connections associated with our memory. So that's part of why sleep is so strongly encouraged, but also staying mentally active, mentally sharp, it's called sometimes. So that's nice to know. It's nice to know that sleep is not just the thing we have to do, but that it's actually essential for our survival. You know, that's important for us to know. And it's better for us to know in chapter four than it is to wait till chapter 15 and find out at the end of the semester, oh, I should have been doing this totally differently. So here are the consequences of ignoring this sage wisdom provided by your textbook and years of neuropsychological research into sleep. You might start noticing some symptoms like inattention, having a really hard time focusing on anything, even things you enjoy. Your hands might start to tremble. We have more episodes of staring off into space and this just general discomfort. It's not necessarily pain. It's almost just like moving through a fog. People start calling it brain fog. Like I'm just kind of, I don't know, in a rut or it feels like I'm just really struggling. That's because you're sleep deprived. That could be one of the causes of a feeling like that. There are some pretty serious, serious consequences for sleep deprivation. Those were the, the lightweight ones. These are the heavy ones. You have a significantly increased risk of being in a car collision because of microsleep while driving in, or inattention, trembling hands at the wheel. All of these things can contribute to unsafe driving. You also have a de decreased immune response. So here's the double whammy. We've already learned that stress decreases your immune response. Sleep also does the same thing. So this is a nightmare for college students, right? What do you have the most of? Stress. And what do you have the least of? Sleep. So you're at the perfect combination right now for a decreased immune response, unless you take action. And that final severe, significant consequence of sleep deprivation that irritability and depression. Uh, so irritability sounds kind of like light lifting, like people are just kind of irked with you. But when it's really prolonged, people don't really want to be around you anymore. And that leads to isolation. And as we know from social distancing and the whole coronavirus experience, isolation from other people is not good for us. We were not made to function that way. And many times people who experience isolation fall into depression, which increases their isolation and it throws off their sleep, which weakens their immune response. The mind and body are connected and we need to treat both of them with respect and listen to them. If your body's saying it needs sleep, then get some sleep. Let's focus on the stages of sleep, the neurobiological aspect of sleep. First, we have pre-sleep. Now, under this pre-sleep category, we have four different types of waves that we're going to be talking about. The first is beta waves. 
These are 13 to 30 hertz. They're smaller and faster waves. This is when you're wide awake and mentally active. I'm very much hoping that you have beta waves going on right now as you're listening to this lecture. Next is alpha waves. These are 8 to 12 hertz, so they're larger and slower. This is when you're relaxed or drowsy. This might be when you're sitting on the couch, staring at the TV, trying to figure out what to binge next on Netflix, and you just can't quite think of it. You just can't quite think of anything, but you're in this relaxed, comfortable posture. Your brain is also relaxed. Your mind is not racing. Those are your alpha waves. As we get deeper into pre-sleep, the third stage of waves are theta waves. These are 4 to 7 hertz, so again, even larger and even slower. This is when you're entering a light sleep. You might start nodding off a bit. If you're sitting on a chair, your head may kind of collapse to the side as you're starting to fall asleep. And then we have delta waves. These are half to three and a half hertz. So these are the largest and slowest waves in pre-sleep that we have. And this is our deepest stage of sleep. In our non-REM stages of sleep, the N1 stage, we have that light sleep. We may have some hypnagogic images and we have a hypnic jerk. So this is where people start twitching as they fall asleep. This is the N1 stage of non-REM sleep. In the N2 stage of non-REM sleep, in our sleep spindles, the temperature, breathing, and heart rate start to decrease. Remember the suprachiasmatic nucleus is controlling our body temperature. And as that lowers, our breathing and our heart rate also lower as we drift deeper into sleep. That leads us into N3. That's where our delta waves are. This is where growth hormones are released, and it's very hard to wake up from this stage of sleep. It can be very hard to wake up someone else. That leads us into the most fascinating stage of sleep that most people are most interested in, REM, rapid eye movement, REM. REM sleep is where your eyes are moving under your eyelids, but the rest of your body is still. And this is where 90% of dreaming seems to occur. So what's this connection between eyes moving under your eyelids and 90% of dreaming occurring? What even is a dream? This leads us into so many questions that we will not be ever able to cover fully in Psych 1A. Uh, but what we do know about dreams is that they are essentially your brain trying to make sense of information being received by the occipital lobe. There's different theories about dreams, and we'll get into those in just a second. So in REM sleep, the person is asleep, but their EEG, their uh, brain imaging, is similar to a person who is fully awake. So that's why REM is sometimes referred to as paradoxical sleep. Why would their brain scans, their brain waves, look similar to a person who's fully awake? Let's think about that for a second. Why would that happen? 
It's because the eyes are physically moving under the eyelids and the brain is interpreting the data received by the occipital lobe. Dreaming takes brain capacity. It takes brain energy to do that. That's why those scans look so similar. There's something else really fascinating that happens during REM sleep. It doesn't happen very often, and it's actually considered a sleep disorder. So this is from your textbook. According to a compilation of information by Dr. Lawrence Martin, associate professor at Case Western Reserve University and specialist in pulmonary and sleep medicine, at least 20 cases of murder while sleepwalking have been recorded. The term sleepwalking, as used in these cases, most likely refers to the very real condition called REM behavior disorder, rather than ordinary sleepwalking. Use of this disorder as a defense in a murder trial has sometimes been successful. REM is the stage of sleep where people do sleepwalk or even sleep eat. Most of us probably know someone or may be someone who sleepwalks, and I've had a few friends of mine who we had to keep changing the locks on the doors or moving the locks to different parts of the door. We had to hide kitchen knives from one of my friends who was a sleep eater because she woke up at 2 a.m. cutting an apple. So she was cutting an apple with a kitchen knife while she was in REM sleep. She had no idea how that was happening. A lot of people ask, how is that possible? If you're asleep, how can you possibly find a door or cut an apple with a knife? I don't have an exact answer for that, but my scientific guess is that a lot of people actually have their eyes open when they're sleepwalking. And even though they are not consciously awake, their brain is still interpreting those images from their eyes it's still active, just like when we're dreaming. So that's my theory. That's my take on it. And this is such a fascinating area of study. If you are interested in sleepwalking and how murder by sleepwalking has been uh, in court and how this um, REM diagnosis, REM behavior disorder, has been used as a defense for that crime, Using your annotated bibliography research assignment for this course might be a great opportunity to explore that some more. There are other sleep disorders, and truthfully, they're not quite as exciting as this whole murder while sleepwalking REM behavior disorder, but they are worth knowing about. The first is nightmares. Most of us have had nightmares. We tend to attribute these to children, but the truth is that anybody can have nightmares. These are bad dreams that arouse feelings of horror, helplessness, extreme sorrow, etc. Feelings we don't like. Different from nightmares are night terrors. This is extreme fear experienced while sleeping. So a nightmare is a bad dream. That's where, you know, Ronald McDonald was 30 feet tall and chasing you down the sidewalk and it was really scary. A night terror is where you might be reliving a bad memory. You might be reliving a traumatic experience or having a dream that's closely resonating with one of those negative experiences in your life. People oftentimes wake up in a full sweat, like a cold sweat. Um, they might be shaking. They might be uh, talking to people that aren't there. 
A night terror is a very extreme, very exaggerated form of a nightmare. And finally, we will talk about sleepwalking. This is moving or walking around during sleep. Or getting up to go to the kitchen and cut an apple at 2 in the morning. Some other sleep disorders include insomnia, narcolepsy, and sleep apnea. These are ones that we tend to be a little more familiar with, especially as college students and faculty. Insomnia is a friend of ours, unfortunately. It's the inability to get to sleep, to stay asleep, or to get good quality of sleep. I think one of the most frustrating things in the whole world is where you go to bed at a reasonable time, you wake up at a reasonable time, but when you wake up, you feel exhausted, like you didn't sleep at all. And you're like, what on earth? I did everything right, but my brain and body just didn't go to that restorative REM place of sleep. It just didn't happen. We typically think of insomnia as not being able to fall asleep, but it can also be the inability to stay asleep or that lack of restorative quality. Narcolepsy we tend to have a very inaccurate picture of. Hollywood wants us to believe that narcolepsy is falling completely asleep at any moment in time. Someone could be walking down the sidewalk and if they have narcolepsy, boom, they fall down on the sidewalk and they are in REM sleep, totally out cold. That's not quite how it works. The definition of narcolepsy is where a person falls immediately into REM sleep during the day without warning. But it's not quite as dramatic as Hollywood makes it seem. It's not like they're standing up and then suddenly pass out. A co-occurring or comorbid condition that occurs with narcolepsy is cataplexy, which is a sudden loss of muscle tone. And that's more so what's causing those collapses that Hollywood has been trying to get us to buy into. That sudden loss of muscle tone is what's causing the person to fall down, not the fact that they're suddenly asleep. And finally, sleep apnea is one many of us are familiar with. It's where a person stops breathing for 10 seconds or more. At first, it just sounds like snoring. And then you notice that there are pretty significant gaps between the snores, the inhales and the exhales. So a person with sleep apnea may need to use a machine called a CPAP, which basically helps regulate their breathing so they don't have those gaps in their breathing. And even though sleep apnea is a fairly common sleep disorder, it can also be a very serious one. There was a young person, approximately 30, I think they were in their mid-30s, uh, from a band that my husband and I really enjoy. And we were shocked to find out that he had died in his sleep one day, and it was because of sleep apnea that he wasn't treating. A lot of people are pretty aversive to using a CPAP machine because it's big and bulky and it makes noise, and it is probably the least attractive thing you can wear to bed. But truthfully, if you do have sleep apnea or someone you love has sleep apnea, it is of critical importance to use whatever your doctor has prescribed to make sure that you are getting oxygen uh, during the night. So let's move on to some really juicy stuff. Dreams. Why do we dream? There are different theories about why we dream. Some people 
can't really figure it out, science is not very well equipped to answer this question because science wants everything to be very objective, observable, measurable, repeatable, verifiable. Dreams fit zero of those categories. Dreams get really interesting when they are reoccurring. All the scientists perk up. Ooh, all of a sudden, this is something that's repeating. We can measure it now. Well, how do you measure a dream? We have a hard time even defining what a dream truly is. So this is where we enter one of the fathers of psychology, Sigmund Freud. Remember that Sigmund Freud believed in the layers of the mind. And the most interesting part is the unconscious aspect of the mind. Things that exist in us that we are completely unaware of. They are outside of our conscious awareness. Well, being in an altered state of consciousness, in sleep, he believed that some of those things that are lurking in the unconscious can be brought out through dreams. So he saw dreams as wish fulfillment. The things we wish would happen, even if it was a bad thing like hurting somebody, he saw that as the brain's telling us this is what it really wants. And maybe we're suppressing that thought or that memory because it's a little too hard for us to grapple with the reality that I kind of want to hurt somebody. So there are two different types of content in this Freudian dream theory. The first is manifest content. This is the actual dream and its events. So that brief example I used earlier of 30-foot Ronald McDonald chasing you down the sidewalk, that is the manifest content, the actual dream and its events. The latent content is the symbolic meaning of that dream. So if the manifest content is that 30-foot Ronald McDonald's chasing me down the sidewalk, the latent content or the symbolic content might be that I feel really guilty about eating that quarter pounder Big Mac for lunch. And that's why Ronald McDonald is chasing me. It is the actual guilt of eating that food that is chasing me. It's worth noting that much of Freudian dream psychology theory is highly, highly sexualized in its content. So he had this whole theory about how different items in dreams represent different things. The latent content of the dreams often had very violent or very sexualized content associated with it. For example, if you had a dream in which you were holding a gun and pointing it at somebody, Freud would not think that you were a violent person. He would think you wanted to sleep with that person because a gun represents a penis. So by you pointing your penis at somebody else, you are indicating that you would like to sleep with them or have some type of power and dominance over them. For those of you who are interested in dream latent content, and are feeling a little weirded out by Sigmund Freud, try Carl Jung. His last name is spelled J-U-N-G. He also had a very robust library of symbolic content and um, different symbolic meanings of things. And he has a whole dictionary of symbols. And yes, some of the content is sexual in nature. We are sexual beings as humans. Um, but it is, I think, much more accessible, and it seems to be much more uh, pertinent. It seems to make more sense to people when they hear like, oh, 
Dreams where your teeth are falling out mean you're stressed out. Um, you're worried you're going to lose something. So that tends to be more Carl Jung's style of dream interpretation. And again, nothing, nothing, nothing about dream interpretation is science. Right now, it is considered more of an art and an interpretation. So we know that dreams are created to explain brainstem activation during REM sleep. The activation synthesis hypothesis states that dreams are just a result of the brain's cortical activity during REM. Whereas the activation information mode model, or the AIM model, states that information accessed from for dreams can be influenced by events from the day. And this seems to make sense too, right? Sometimes we relive our day. I think the most irritating dream sequence I have is where I walk through my entire day only to wake up and find out I didn't actually do any of that. Now I have to actually go do that. So I feel like I'm doing it twice. Um, or if there was an embarrassing moment during the day or something that you're questioning, uh, sometimes those come back and come out through our dreams. So what do people dream about? Hall theorized that uh, dreams reflect our everyday life. This is his cognitive theory of dreaming. While Domhoff theorized that culture and gender influence our dreams, and that's part of why sexual content is really common. Think about how prevalent sex is in our culture and how our gender influences sex so much. Now, this is my favorite part about getting to do this job. I get to take my teaching ability and my clinical life skills and mush them together. And we're going to do that right now. So everything we've learned about sleep, we're going to make it into a practical worksheet for you to be able to adjust your sleep to better fit your life and hopefully have an overall better sleep and better life experience. So here are tips from an expert. This comes from Catherine Darley, who is a naturopathic doctor. And the question she always asks is, do you want a good day or a long day? Prioritize quality over quantity. And I'm so glad that she said this to me. Embrace the nap. I love a good afternoon nap. So when she said that, I jumped all over it. So the experts recommend a 30 to 90 minute nap in order to decrease cardiac complication risk. And an afternoon nap increases your ability to communicate with others. I was really interested by this idea. And when I was at this sleep wellness training, another member, another participant said, yeah, that's why in Mexican culture we have a siesta every afternoon. It's so that we can rest, rejuvenate, and be more efficient and kinder to each other in the afternoon. I usually rely on an iced coffee to try and help me get through the afternoon. So I wonder how much better would our experiences, our interactions be, if we replaced our afternoon caffeine with an afternoon catnap. For nighttime sleeping, bedtime snacks matter. The food you eat before you go to bed will affect the way that you sleep. 
so opt for fiber, fat, and protein before bed. This can look like celery with peanut butter or any type of topping that you may like, um, or cheese and crackers. A lot of nut butters have protein in them, but if you are not able to have nut butter, I'm sure you know how to make that adjustment accordingly. We also need to redefine sleep. We see it as this kind of hindrance, especially when you have things you need or want to get done. Sleep gets in the way of us doing that. But we need to be awake for our roles and responsibilities and sleep for restoration in order to fulfill those roles and responsibilities that we have. Another big tip is putting our thoughts to rest. How many times have we gone to bed just to lay there and stare at the ceiling with a million thoughts racing in your head and you can't seem to get them to stop no matter what you do? Tip number one is put your phone down. Then spend 10 minutes, about one to two hours before bedtime, writing down the thoughts that tend to arise at night. If you're anything like me, I start thinking about the next day the clients I'm going to see, the things I need to have prepared, the meetings I'm going to be in, the presentations that I have. So an hour or two before bed, I start processing those. I write them down. I get them out of my brain and onto paper. You can use whatever style works for you to express your thoughts. Then in the middle of the night, if your mind starts doing that racing thing again, you can just tell it, I already thought about that and now it's time to sleep. This is limit setting that you're doing with yourself. It's kind of a weird thought that we have to do limit setting with our own brains, but it establishes that we're off duty. Sleep is a time where we are off duty. The only thing we need to do is restore, and that's the brain's job to do only during sleep. It's a skill that we have to practice, just like with coping skills we talked about in our stress and health chapter. And like any new thing we're doing, it's going to take time and we're not always going to get it right. One of the most important parts of getting a good night's rest is the winding down. So the goal is to be in a parasympathetic state at bedtime. Remember, parasympathetic is the rest and digest system of your body. So if you're thinking about the next day and worried about a meeting or worried about a class or a test or whatever it may be, you're in a sympathetic activation state. Your fight, flight, freeze system is engaged. There's no way you're going to be able to fall asleep. So acknowledge that. Do what you need to do to get yourself into a parasympathetic state and then try going to sleep. Do relaxing activities in low light. Remember, your suprachiasmatic nucleus is relying on light cues from the environment to figure out when it's supposed to decrease your body temperature for your little mini hibernation for your night of sleep. So the lower lighting you can use at night, not watching movies with a lot of flashing lights. The Avengers is not a good movie to fall asleep to. Any of the movies. Um, relaxing activities in low light. Avoid task-oriented activities, so not prepping for the next day. Maybe you're reading a nice book or you're having a cup of tea, you know, whatever it might be, doing some yoga. Take the time you need for your tasks in another room. 
This can be really hard to do if you share your house or share a room with other people, but the bedroom should be exclusively for two things, sleep and sex. It should not be for answering work emails. It should not be for having that really difficult conversation with your dad or whoever is calling you. Do those things elsewhere. Your room needs to be a sanctuary for you to sleep because our brain associates emotions from earlier in the day with that physical space. So have your bedroom as much as possible to be that sanctuary space for you to sleep. So this is where we have to talk about technology. Most of us use our phones or our tablets or watching TV to help us fall asleep. And in 2011, there was a poll done by the National Sleep Foundation, and they found that 95% of Americans use some type of technology in the hour before bed. 49% of 20-year-olds increasing from 69% of baby, baby boomers watch TV. 50% are 13 and 29-year-olds using a computer. 20% are 13 to 29-year-olds awoken a few nights each week by phone, getting alerts about Instagram or, you know, whatever apps you follow, people texting you, that kind of thing. And almost 20% of 13 to 29-year-olds are clinically sleepy, according to the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. That is way too many. Almost a quarter of people in the 13 to 29-year-old uh, age cohort are clinically sleepy. That's getting towards sleep deprived. So those are the tips for falling asleep. To have a good wind-down routine, avoid bright lights and technology. That's the gist of it. What about waking up? It's probably everyone's least favorite part of the day, except for a few of you who are early birds that I do not understand how you do that. But here are some tips for waking up to feel like you're actually awake when you get out of bed or soon after getting out of bed. It's all about light. The suprachiasmatic nucleus needs the light input to let your body know Temperature, time to go up, time to warm up. So you want to get out of bed. So you have the warmth you need to be able to move and do things. So 20 minutes of bright light exposure is recommended within the first hour of waking. Does this mean you should go stare at the bright lights in your bathroom? No, it means to try and sit by a window when you're drinking your morning coffee or as you're eating breakfast. Some of you might be eating breakfast as you run to school or, well, I guess no one's running to school right now, um, but as you're running to work or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, so just 20 minutes of bright light. Natural light is best, however you can get it, though, um, within the first hour of waking. And use caffeine wisely. Remember that it takes 20 to 30 minutes for caffeine to become effective. So if you need to make a phone call in 20 minutes... Have your coffee or your caffeine now so that your brain is awake. It has that stimulant in its system so it can make that phone call. But it is a time-delayed effect. So one of the best recommendations um, for those of you who take road trips, you get sleepy at some point, especially if you have been on Highway 5 forever and ever 
and ever because it goes on forever and ever and ever. And it all looks exactly the same. So here's what you do. You find a rest stop somewhere, you get some caffeine, you guzzle the whole thing down, do it safely, then take a nap. Wait, why would you take a nap immediately after drinking a bunch of caffeine? That doesn't make any sense. It takes 20 to 30 minutes for that caffeine to do anything to your body, for that stimulant to take any effect whatsoever, almost half an hour. So while you're waiting for that to kick in, instead of fiddling around on your phone for 30 minutes, take a little restorative cat nap. A little 30-minute nap will help you feel more refreshed and you have the added boost of that caffeine in your system. Think about that too for studying. You make your coffee, you sit down, you start to study. What if instead you make your coffee, you drink it, then you take a little nap, then you study? much more effective for your body and your brain. I have included in our course for uh, chapter four here, an optimal sleep plan. So if you happen to be um, going through the slides or have access to Canvas while you're listening to this, go ahead and open your optimal sleep plan. If you do not have access to it at this exact moment, I'm just going to go ahead and walk us through it verbally. And you can go back and fill this out as you wish. So the first step is identify how much sleep you do best with for mood and performance. You might want to think about a vacation or holiday where you slept more and then you felt great. This should not include sleep under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And this sleep number is highly individual. My optimal sleep number is 10. 10 hours a night is what I do well with. Some of you do just fine with 7. Some of you might need 12. All of it is okay. Step two is to design your sleep hours based on work and school nights. What time do you need to get up for work or school? So you would indicate those there. And then using your sleep number from number one, what is bedtime? So if I need 10 hours of sleep and I have to get up at eight, what time do I need to be in bed? And then do that calculation for yourself. Then look at your days off. To keep your body clock in rhythm, sleep should be the same or pretty similar. So this idea that you can stay up till 3 a.m. on Friday night, technically Saturday morning because you don't have class the next day or you don't have work, you're really wearing your body out and you're messing up your sleep cycle like crazy. So then look at your light exposure to increase your alertness and dark to promote sleep. So limit your exposure one to two hours before sleep and get bright light in the morning. Winding down from your day before bed so you're relaxed and ready to sleep. How much time do you need? Some people need an hour or two. Some people need 20, 30 minutes. So calculate that, and then you would enter your time to start winding down. And there's a space to identify what sleep-promoting activities you enjoy. And then finally, there's some prompts for creating an ideal place to sleep. Check the changes that you need to make and celebrate what you're doing right so far, and then keep doing that. That's one of the most important things with learning this information, I think, um, for this whole course, is that you are 
doing some things right. Not everything needs to be corrected. So if you are doing something well already, congratulations, keep doing that. So for sleep, it needs to be dark. It needs to be quiet. It should be cooler than 65 degrees Fahrenheit. This one's hard for many of us, but there should not be any pets on the bed. This is because they tweak your spine and they don't allow for natural movement when you're asleep. And remember, no workstations in the bedroom. All you do in your bed and in your bedroom is go to sleep and have sex. Your bed should be comfortable and fitted for your body as much as possible. And your bed should be clean and the room should be clean. Don't forget to dust the blinds and wash the curtains because they hold a lot of dust. And if there's all that dust in the air, then your immune system can be activated in response to that, which would decrease your restorative sleep and you wouldn't be getting the amount of sleep you need either. And this one's important that there should not be a clock visible from your bed. Many of us use our phones as alarm clocks. I use a circadian rhythm alarm clock and I actually cover the numbers or I turn the clock, the numbers away from me. Um, so I don't wake up in the middle of the night and go, okay, it's 2.33. If I fall asleep now, I can still get five hours of sleep before I have to wake up because that game just keeps us up all night. Um, and this doctor, Catherine Darley, even recommends having your cell phone in a different room so it can't distract you. She also recommends using an alarm tone that is more pleasing than agitating, because remember, you want to fall asleep and wake up parasympathetically with your rest and digest system activated, not the fight, flight, freeze. That brings us to the first half of chapter four coming to an end. When we do our next episode, we will get to talk about some really fun things like drugs and hypnosis. You definitely aren't going to want to miss it. So make sure you listen to the second episode of chapter four.